Let us open with prayer. What a fellowship, what a joy divine, leaning on the everlasting arms. What a blessing, what a peace is mine, leaning on the everlasting arms. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the teaching of Dr. Lloyd. May we be taught, may we be edified. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, is this working? Yes. Just coming through? Okay, good. Okay, last week I talked about something called form criticism where you look at the different forms of literature in the Bible. And this week I'm going to talk about source and redaction criticism. That's this week's. Okay, so everybody has their hand out and all that? Of course, you'll see what's coming. It's like magic. You'll have, you'll have it before it's up there. Okay, so foreign criticism studies literary forms, and of course, that seems pretty obvious. If you're going to call it something, you ought to just call it foreign criticism because you're looking at literary forms. Um, source criticism looks for and of course, this is what literary theorists do. They look on the sources used by the Bible's editors, whether Hebrew or other Middle Eastern sources. And redaction criticism focuses on the editors or the redactors of the Bible, including their specific theology interpretations and additions. So by the end of today's talk, you will know what's called the documentary hypothesis of the construction of the Bible. All right, so I thought it would be easier if we started with an example rather than just talk about it theoretically. What do you think? Yeah, that's, that's how people think. So once we look at some examples, then you, then you kind of already got the evidence, and then we can talk about the theory. All right, so for example, if we look at the literary sources for First and Second Samuel, we'll find out that actually... Um, they're out of order in terms of the, of the source. There's an early source and a late source, and you would figure that the early source would be 1 Samuel or something like that, wouldn't you? Well, no. That the early source is actually the later part, uh, mostly 2 Samuel, and the, and the later source is the first part. So 1 Samuel begins with the late source. Okay, there's a lot of ways that they know this. I'm going to give you some of the evidence but also on here, on the, in the slideshow, I give you links for different sites where you can look up this information yourself. Um, so 1 Samuel begins uh, with the birth of Samuel. Everybody know who Samuel is? Well, I got a couple of nods. So we'll go with that Sam, uh, in the, after the period of the judges where um, what we call Israel, the Israelites were ruled by um, various people called judges, and we're not quite sure exactly what the judges did. Deborah, uh, who was one of the judges, actually seemed to have held court, whereas Samson, a judge, 
didn't seem to do much of anything <laughs> in terms of being a political leader except kill Philistines. So we're not quite sure exactly what the judges did. But they were the leaders, uh, and Gideon seems to have been uh, mostly warrior leaders, protector leaders, as you would expect. When we move out of that time period into the time of Samuel, we have a, uh, a prophet who has become and again, nothing is ever defined, so we have to figure out what a prophet is by just looking at what prophets do. But Sam, when Samuel is born, there is no king. It's still the time of the judges. And after his, uh, it, during his time, though, he names, at the uh, request of God, he names the first king, Saul, the first king of Israel. And then, actually, there's two different points of view on this right in the books of Samuel. We'll talk about that. So the late source was compiled in the early days, it should say, of the monarchy. I teach grammar and got a preposition wrong. But we could say early days for the monarchy, it still makes sense. 750 to 650 BCE, okay? The monarchy would be the time of the kings, so it's written in the time of the kings, looking back before the time of the kings. Leading ideas. And this one seems to be the one that I think most people are familiar with is, is the reading of First and Second Samuel. Samuel was the judge and true ruler of Israel under God and that the choosing of the king was a mistake. There's a lot of hostility towards the idea of having a king um, that's reflected in judges. When, when they ask Gideon to be king, he says, you know, we have God as our king and refuses to be king. That perspective has changed a little bit. Um, in the other source. The personal failures of such figures as Eli and his son Saul were punishment for their sins. So this is perspective of the late source. The early source was probably written by a single individual during the reign of Solomon, which was David's son, the third king. And uh, as the Oxford Annotated Bible says, it's of remarkable historical and literary quality that the author deserves the title of father of history, usually given to Herodotus, who lived 500 years later. The author's unknown, but they think maybe it was Abathar, who's mentioned in 1 Samuel 22, and Amaha, or Amahas uh, in 2 Samuel. The early source, the establishment of the kingships, regarded as divinely ordained and a blessing and salvation for the nation. And Samuel is a less important figure, a modest prophet who's not a ruler in his own right. If you, when you read the two books, you get a sense of this. Sometimes Samuel seems to be very important, and sometimes he's just off the scene, and, and you really have no idea what he's doing. So it's really kind of the influence of the two books. And this is kind of how I've always read the two books, that Saul is a noble but tragic figure, and David is the real hero of the story, but a very human one who does both noble and ignoble deeds, as, as you know. And then 2 Samuel is almost entirely early source and could be called the book of David. So the way that we read them is actually the reverse of the way they were written. Okay, I wanted to give you some of the evidence that caused people to look for different sources in the first place. So there's different aspects of both books that caused uh, scholars to think that there was more than one source. And here's one of the examples. David wins a position at Saul's court in 1 Samuel 16. But later, when David kills Goliath, Saul has no idea who David is. So one of the things that caused people to wonder if there were different sources is the fact that they have these stories that don't match up. 
and I don't know about you, but I remember the first time I read that, I was like, he was like, who is this young man, and what is he doing here? And you're like, didn't you just hire him as your court musician? <laughs> so either Saul, and one of the explanations, of course, if you're trying to just unify it, is that Saul is losing his mind. But he, we don't have evidence that he's losing his mind at this point. <coughs> also, a story of David sparing Saul's life is told twice. And, uh, you know, perhaps it happened twice, but the thing is, the beginning of it is exactly the same. It's the same people that go to Saul and tell David, tell King Saul where David is. So it's the same exact setup twice, and then it has a slightly different telling. In one, David cuts Saul's robe, and the other, he, he takes his spear. Dr. Boyd. Yes. Often, and we'll look at another really, really strong example in a minute of that. But yes, I, people try to put the two stories together, but a lot of times it's really hard to do. Um, and there are other clues. David, uh, when David comes, all right, let me try again. They're celebrating one of the, the Jewish festivals, and David is expected to be there. And he doesn't come because he's afraid of Saul. They didn't celebrate that for a few hundred more years. So we, you have to think, well, <laughs> how are they celebrating something that hasn't happened and isn't going to happen? But actually, it's very interesting. It's a Jewish holiday very similar to Valentine's Day. Um, so I didn't know if you knew that they had one like that, but they do. It was basically, that there were a lot of young women who didn't have marriage partners, and they made a day kind of where women could go around and pick partners. Maybe we need to bring that holiday back, I don't know. <laughs> Sadie Hawkins Day, basically, yes. I can't remember the name of it offhand, I'm sorry. Um, now, this is the one of the strongest ones, and this is very interesting, because I was always taught that there was no temple before Solomon's temple. And uh, this is just not true. In 1 Samuel 1-7 and in 3-3, it refers to a temple in Shiloh in northern kingdom of Israel, and David isn't born yet. This is the story of the birth and the raising of Saul. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and quit, would not eat. Now, house of the Lord there, as you're going to see, means the temple in Hebrew. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not get, yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark was. Then the Lord called Samuel. So in Hebrew, it's temple of the Lord. So we know that there was a temple, and it, it still doesn't mean that the temple that Solomon built wasn't important, but that is the first temple in Jerusalem. But it is not the first temple and it's right there in the scripture. But in 2 Samuel 7, it, uh, the writer doesn't seem to be aware of what should be an earlier story because it's not an earlier story. <laughs> Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt to this day. So that doesn't fit at all with what we already read in 1 Samuel. So we have pretty strong evidence that there's more than one source and they don't exactly have their stories straight. 
Okay, another example where I think it's easier to uh, see is a book, First and Second Kings, because they admit their sources. They actually give a little bibliography. So, early source of uh, Samuel is part of First Kings, and then it also uses the book of the Acts of Solomon, which it tells you that it's quoting from. It uses the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah, which it tells you in, in many places that it got pieces from. And these chronicles are not the chronicles that we have in the Old Testament, but different chronicles. Lost to history. Uh, there are stories of kings and prophets from both Israel and Judah, notably kings Jeroboam, Jeroboam really, Ahab, Hezekiah, and the prophets Elijah and Elisha. So we know that these traditions were floating around and put together. And then there are archives of the temple, especially the times of Solomon and Josiah. There's really, when you get to the sections on Josiah, there's very, very detailed information in ways that you don't see in other places. And of course, that gives us a hint as to when these things were written down. Let's remember part of the theory I was talking about last week is to figure out where someone is in history is what do they know very well, what do they not, not know at all, and what do they know not as well as if they'd have lived there. Does all that make sense? For instance, some of you know things in detail that I don't know because I wasn't born yet, right? So if I wrote about that time, I would have kind of an amateur slant on that because I wasn't there. Yes? My students often will do that. They'll talk about music that they've heard. And I, I want to say, but you really haven't heard Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> you heard it in a different context. Or you ran into that John Lennon song in a commercial. <laughs> you know, so it's a little different. And that's how they figure it out also, is what do they know what do they don't know? Like, for instance, the fact that David goes to a holiday that didn't exist for a few hundred years, you know that the writer must have lived in the time of that holiday. Okay. Now, source criticism also considers any possible influence of other Middle Eastern cultures. Now, this one makes a lot of people nervous um, because for a long time, everyone thought the Bible was absolutely unique, that it was the only book of its kind written in that, that area. But... You know the Rosetta Stone that they found where they could translate um, other languages. When they first discovered how to read cuneiform, which was the writing that preceded uh, the earliest form of writing, they didn't used to know how to read it, and they also couldn't read Egyptian. They thought maybe they were just pictures. They really had no idea. Uh, but from in the 19th century and early 20th century, <coughs> we began to be able to read a lot of these languages of the of the time period. And what happened was, uh, one of the most shocking ones we'll see in a second was uh, something called the Epic of Gilgamesh. Because there was a flood story. And I think uh, everybody was kind of astounded that there was another flood story. Fi it turns out it's much more than that. This is actually a drawing from the Sumerian culture that which preceded uh, Old Testament culture by a couple thousand years. Um, now this is a depiction of from the Bronze Age, which would have been about the time of Abraham, of the Sumerian mother goddess. Now, now you could just look at the picture and see elements of what story. Yeah, there's the serpent, there's the tree of life, and a man and a woman. Yes? 
it's even conjectured that um, Israelite people saw this image and interpreted it differently than what it meant in the Sumerian culture. The Sumerian mother goddess and the serpent who coils up right behind her is the image of her regenerative power. On the other side of the tree, in identical posture, sits her son lover called Son of the Abyss, Lord of the Tree of Life, whose role as fertilizing the source of life is given in the bull's horns on his head. Since the serpent and the bull on opposite sides of the seal are both images of the living and dying manifestation of the goddess, a true mirror-like image is created of the unification of opposites in a single vision. Further, both goddess and son lover gesture with outstretched hands toward the hanging fruit of the tree of life, offering the gifts of immortality and enlightenment together. She, immortality, and he, enlightenment. Now, I think you already sense that Adam and Eve was quite a different story. But similar figures. Serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must eat, not eat from any tree in the garden? I'm going to kind of fly through this because the similarities are in red. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for, for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now, of course, this doesn't date from the time. We have no images from the time of the Bible at all. Um, so, of course, this is a much later rendition of that. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat. So the story has almost opposite meaning. That in the Sumerian story, the male and female goddess are unified and offering life and knowledge through their, basically, knowledge and eternal life through the tree of life. They're offering it to the people. Whereas in this story, God denies it. There's another uh, piece called the Enuma Elish. And we'll see in a minute where that comes from. But I wanted to look at a few key terms that I put. In Genesis 1, in the beginning God created heavens and earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And I wanted to include that word. In Hebrew, that's techom. And it's a feminine term. Um, and we have evidence in other scriptures, in Psalms uh, and in Job, that there were actually other stories of creation that were a part of the Hebrew tradition. And in it, uh, sometimes it was seen as that there was a battle between God, the Spirit of God, and the water. And the water is chaos, and God is bringing the land out of the water. So it's, it's, it's the end of a battle. <coughs> so the feminine form here is interesting because it's basically saying that somehow creation takes place as a union of the male and the female, which is very similar, of course, to the earlier Sumerian image. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let the dry ground appear, and it was so. I'm sure that's familiar. Probably haven't been reading the Enuma Elish lately. So let's take a look at that. First tablet, uh, when the height of heaven was not named and the earth beneath did not bear a name, and the primeval Apsu, who begat them, and Chaos, Tiamat, the mother of them both, their waters were mingled together. So we have almost exactly the same image of, the, of the, the father over the, the chaos of the water. 
And in this case, they create, first create the gods, and then they create the earth. So I also gave you some places where there are other parallels and a web link where you can go and look at the whole Enuma Elish. We're discovering more and more of these documents as time goes on and translating them. There are thousands of untranslated pieces from Sumer and other cultures in the area. So there's probably more to find. All right, to give you another example. There's a story of Inanna and the Hulu. <laughs> it's hard for me to say that one. <laughs> Hulupu tree. I didn't know that the Sumerians had a word like Hulupu. All right. Now, all of these precede the scriptures. They're all older stories. A single tree, a halupu tree, was planted by the banks of the Euphrates, nurtured by its waters. The south wind uprooted it, and the river carried it, it away. Inanna, a woman who walked in fear of the word of the sky god, noticed the importance of the word, too. You know, God creates the world through the word, parallel here, that, that the sky god had created the world through his word. On, who walked in the fear of the word of the air god Enlil. Also, there's the Hebrew poetry where they make the parallel st structured statements. Plucked the tree from the river and planted it in her holy garden in Uruk. Now, Uruk's important because it's real close to what city that we know from the Old Testament. Ur, yeah. So I thought I would go ahead and give you a few facts and figures on that. In 4100 B.C., Uruk was founded in central Iraq. In fact, guess where the name Iraq comes from? Take a good look. <laughs> I, it's funny. My brother-in-law one time said something like, oh, we just ought to bomb them back to the Stone Age, back when the war was first beginning. And I was like, they invented culture. <laughs> when Germanic people were hitting each other in the head with bones... These people were building, building cities. <laughs> we need some perspective here. Yes? And it's funny that things are still going on in Iraq. 4,000 B.C., the Sumerians arrive at Ur. So they founded Ur at 4,000 B.C. Abraham lived somewhere in the early part of the second millennium B.C., for, so a couple thousand years later. And when he is in Ur, of course, the culture is already established. These would have been familiar symbols and stories. All right, continuing with our story, then a serpent. You're like, could it get any more connected? Then a serpent who could not be charmed made its nest in the halupu tree, and an anzu bird set its young in the branches of the tree, and the dark maid Lilith, you're like, really, Lilith? That's interesting. Built her home in the trunk. Anyone familiar with Lilith, the story of Lilith? You will be in a minute. <laughs> Gilgamesh struck the serpent who could not be charmed the Anzu bird flew with his young to the mountains and Lilith smashed her home and fled to the wild and uninhabited places Gilgamesh then loosened the roots of the Hulupu tree and the sons of the city accompanied him and cut off its branches I don't know if that's a positive story or a negative story but we've got a woman a man, the word of God the garden, serpent all of it alright Lilith ends up being a, a demon in Hebrew legend, the Jewish legend, and she only appears in Scripture once in the Bible in Isaiah 34, 14. 
which associates with demons of the desert. And this is a story you've probably heard. In the 8th to 10th century CE, so in the, in the, in the modern era, era, she makes an appearance in a satirical work called Alphabet of Bensira. And it's here she becomes, it is first given that she, she was the first wife of Adam. Have you ever heard that story? Well, because of Lilith Fair, the feminist concert venue thing, they made a big deal out of that story. And of course, the reason she was cast out as first wife is because she thought that male and female, he created them, she took it very literally. <coughs> now see how it fits with the two creation stories. The first creation story that we see, which is actually not the oldest, they're created together, right? Male and female, he created them. And in the other story, it's Adam and Eve. So some people say, and this guy kind of read back into that and said, well, there must have been a first set and then something went wrong. Um, but she tries to assert her equality and Adam rejects that. Refusing to conform to Adam's desire, she escapes from Eden and is subsequently replaced by the more subservient Eve, who's less acclaimed to equality since she was made out of Adam's side. Having escaped Eden, Lilith takes her son on a takes on her renowned role as baby stealer and mother of demons. Well, yeah. You can take that story where you will. It's interesting what happens to women who presume equality in that story. Okay. And just when you thought there were so many connections more, we also have the Epic of Gilgamesh. And again, I put this, the scripture there for context, but the important thing is, of course, that the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and he picks one man to build a boat. The Epic of Gilgamesh, which is 3000 to 2000 BCE. In those days, the world teemed, the people multiplied, the world bellowed like a wild bull, and the great God was aroused by the clamor. Enlil heard the clamor and said to the gods in council, the uproar of mankind is so intolerable and sleep is no longer possible by reason of all the babble. Quite a different interpretation. This is all about evil, and this is all about, they're just noisy. I think, I, I kind of agree with that one. We are a noisy bunch, aren't we? Neighbor out snow blowing at six in the morning. <coughs> I've got a neighbor that blows with the blower every, well he did it in the fall, every evening at dinner time. That really pushed my envelope. <laughs> Standing in the living room going, what is wrong with that guy? But at least I never ran out and yelled at him. All right. Enlil did this, but Ea, because of his oath, warned me in a dream. Now, me here is the speaker, the guy who survives the flood, Adnapushnam, is telling the story. He whispered their words to my house of reeds. Reed house, reed house, O wall, hearken, reed house, wall, reflect, O man of Shurapak, son of Uraba, tutu, ubara, tutu, tear down your house and build a boat. Abandon possessions and look for your life, despise worldly goods, and save your soul alive. I also gave you links to that so that you could read the whole story. It's very interesting how many parallels there are. And actually how much smarter Adnapushnam was because he took more people with him. He took carpenters. Good plan. And, you know, you have to have people to marry your daughters and things. He planned a little more for that kind of thing. Yeah, this just blows me away. Are, are you implying from this that the world once got to the point where... There was too many people for the 
space and so forth, which we're arriving at again. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what that implies. All it implies is that they, there is this flood story, and and there was a flood story before our flood story of the Old Testament. Whether there was really a flood, I'll let other people try to figure that out. There are a lot of theories on that, and National Geographic will never tire of making shows about was there a flood. <coughs> but we do know there are flood stories, and now we've found that there are flood stories all over the planet. Why is that up in the corner? <laughs> okay, that's not supposed to be happening. It's not happening. Why is it doing that? There we go. I did want to show you there are more in other places of the Bible in Ecclesiastes. It says, go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it is now that God favors what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days, for this is your lot in life, and, your la and, and something's missing from that statement in labor and in, in, in your, well, oh well. You can see what it says. <laughs> All right, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh, um, he's kind of a, he's out of control as a king, and he, um, the gods, the people plead to the gods to get him under control. He's, he's um, pretty much, well, what he's doing is drafting all the men and sleeping with all the women, and the people are tired of it, so they, they ask God to bring an equal, and so this other man, Enkidu, is born, and they meet and they fight like bulls and the way those stories always go. And <coughs> so they fight like bulls and they become best friends. And then as best friends, they decide they d make the stupidest decisions possible. It reminds me of me and my friend in the ninth grade. Like both of us were basically good and sensible people, but we came up with the dumbest plans of things to do ever. We were always cutting school and everything else. So. Their plan was to make a name for themselves by killing the god of the forest. And they go and they kill the god of the forest, which arouses the attention of the mother goddess, uh, well, actually not the mother goddess, but kind of the equivalent of Aphrodite in their culture, Ishtar, but who, by the way, we get the word star from her, um, Ishtar Astarte. Um, but anyway, she's the queen of heaven. <coughs> Interestingly enough, Hathor is the queen of heaven, an Egyptian thing, and she's the cow that jumps over the moon. But anyway, moving right along, I love all these connections. <laughs> Ishtar gets, it's, wants to marry him, but he knows uh, something about sacred marriage. And the idea of sacred marriage was if you married the queen of heaven, that you would only live for a short time, and then you would be killed as a sacrifice to her to symbolize the union of the male and the female. Back to that whole theme of union of the male and the female. <coughs> so he doesn't do it. And she sends a bull, which is Taurus the bull, she sends a bull down to kill everyone and they manage to kill the bull, but Enkidu gets killed. And Gilgamesh is so distraught that he decides he's gonna go to the land of the gods and find out the secret of eternal life. <coughs> and on his way there, he meets a woman named Siduri. And I used to have a friend of mine, she told me, she said, I am Siduri. <laughs> I'm like, what is that? She says, well, I, I meet men and I tell them the truth and they just ignore me and move on. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what happens with Gilgamesh. 
So Gilgamesh meets her, and she says, there's no use going to the land of the gods because your fate is to die. You're a human being, and that's the way that it goes. And so she tells him this. As for you, Gilgamesh, fill your belly with good things, day and night, night and day, dance and be merry, which is exactly quoted in Ecclesiastes. Feast and rejoice. Let your clothes be fresh. Bathe yourself in water. Cherish the little child that holds your hand and make your wife happy in your embrace for this too is the lot of man. So you can't deny that very, very parallel ideas, almost exactly parallel words, occur in other scriptures, other documents from other cultures. Here's another one. In case you think I'm going to run out, I'm not, but we're not going to keep doing this forever. Okay, this is one that I talked about a little bit last week. In Genesis 1, we have a different story of creation than we do in Genesis 2. In the beginning, God, Elohim, which means the gods, it's a plural word, created the heavens and earth. And now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And we've read that before. And then speaking in the plural, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, male and female, he created them and blessed them, made them um, be fruitful and multiply. In, the, in Genesis 2, this is the last, it says, then God, Yahweh, blessed the seventh day, made it holy. Actually, it's Yahweh in the next verse. Sorry, that's not, that's a mistype on my part. I'm sure you're, this is still the Elohim. Oh, it's not going to cooperate, is it? Copy. There we go. Okay, I didn't want to copy it. Hello, what am I doing? I cut. Okay, back to our story. There's probably part of it still up there, but who cares? Okay. This is the last verse of the other story. Now notice that in verse 4, this is what made <coughs> literary theorists think, wait a second, because look at the what it says. It says, this is the account. Yes? It's, like it's saying, okay, you've read that one. Now here's the other one. This is the account of the heavens and the earth while they were created when the Lord God, Yahweh, different name for God, made the earth and the heavens. And in this story, the Lord God forms man from the dust of the ground, etc. Okay, so these are all the various... Um, all right, that's actually a different point than the other. So, the point I was making so before is that we have found other documents from other cultures that, are, that parallel... Some of, the, some of the stories in the Old Testament. <coughs> Here we have a little different point, and this is for redaction criticism, that actually we have different editors putting the documents together. Okay? So point one, there were other documents. And whether the Old Testament documents influenced them, they influenced the Old Testament documents, I'll leave that up to other people to debate. But the idea is that there are similar documents is the only thing I want to say. And then here we can see that there's evidence of editors, that this story has been added to this story. And one of them was probably first and one second. It turns out 
<coughs> that the second one was actually the earlier one, of course. Okay, here's how kind of all of that started. <laughs> um, in 2 Kings, we find out that there's a book of the law found in the reign by Hilkiah in the reign of Josiah. Okay, back through our history a little bit. You remember Saul names the first king. Well, we've gone all the way through a number of kings, and the northern kingdom, Israel, has fallen to the power of the Assyrians. So all that's left of Israel is, is a very small section. Israel's about the size of, uh, uh, let me think, what state? Vermont, maybe? So we don't even have Vermont anymore. It's just very small section. Uh, and it's called Judah. It's not even called Israel. <coughs> so there's only part of the country left, the southern kingdom. And Josiah is a ruler at this time. And they find this book of the law. And here's the words. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah the priest, Achim, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan. I'm not going to go through all those names. But he gave it to some secretaries. And he said, go and inquire of the Lord for me and for, all, for the people and for all Judah about what, has been, what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. And scholars looked at that and really just looked at it and thought, this means he's saying that they didn't have the books of the law that we would think that they would have. They should have had all the five books of the, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the teachings. They should have had that, but he's saying they don't have it. He's saying we don't have anything like this. We haven't been obeying the laws because we don't know about it. Now, what scholars believe is that they have found parts of the book of Deuteronomy which means, I talked about last time, what's it mean? Dudo. <laughs> Rano. <laughs> Second law. <laughs> okay. This passage reflects the idea that people of this time do not seem to have as much of the Bible as, as you would assume that they would. I marked a passage. A lot of what I'm teaching f comes from this book called The Bible is Literature, which seems such an obvious title. They didn't go out of their way to name this. Let's see. What's it say here? The surprising thing about the story, if it records an actual event, is that as late as 622 B.C., even the priests of the temple apparently did not know Mosaic law. The story does not suggest that those who had found the scroll saw it as an addition to some code or law that they already possessed. For them, it was something unique. In other words, up to that time, there had been no authoritative scriptural text to which they were accustomed to turn for guidance, nor had they felt the need for such a text. We conclude that the scroll found in the temple became the very first portion of canonical scripture. But because it, uh, it was also the first piece of scripture ever to have been made canonical on the spot, it can tell nothing about the process by which the rest of the Bible became canonical. All right. So, right then that caused scholars to reflect and notice that 
in none of the previous books do they mention the other books. You don't, David doesn't quote Moses. You'd think that he would. Yes? Wouldn't that make sense? He doesn't quote the law. He doesn't quote the Ten Commandments. He doesn't seem to know that those things exist. The logic would say that he would do that. So, we also look in Judges, no mention of the scriptures, and no mention in the, in the accounts of David and Solomon, no quotation of, of the laws or figures like Moses. So, from this, theory goes that the scriptures began to be put together. Now, it's not to say that some of it didn't exist before this time, but that it wasn't universal, it wasn't widespread. Okay, so here's the way it works. Differences in style, names for God, and emphasis led scholars to believe that redactors, editors have put pieces of earlier traditions together in ways that supported their own theologies. And so this became the theory, kind of starting with, with the Deuteronomy was the first canonical book. What, did the other books exist before that? Yes, they did. And they began to piece that process together. In the early monarchy, the period of the kings, about 950 B.C., Remember, David was king around 1,000. A traditionist from Judah first organized traditions into a written epic. So these were the J accounts. And this would have been the story of Adam and Eve, that writer. And this writer traditionally uses the name Yahweh for God. And then between 900 and 750, a traditionist from north Israel, or Ephraim, presented another version. and basically just integrated the southern version and the northern version of history. And then the 7th century B.C., Deuteronomy was published, and the story was again modified. And the Deuteronomists uh, wrote 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Samuel, and edited Judges. And then the time of the exile, priestly writers rounded out the tradition. Now, I'm going to go kind of to the end and then back up. Because, again, I think this will help make what I'm going to say make more sense. What we can see in that process, remember some of it is back in the northern kingdom, the Yahweh's account, then the Elohim, the Elohist account. Remember the other story had Elohim for the name of God. The Deuteronomist version. Now, maybe I shouldn't back up. It might be more clear this way. Okay. So the Yahweh's source was first, the one that uses Yahweh for the name of God. It, can, uh, it has narratives, makes up about half of Genesis, half of Exodus, and fragments of Numbers. Jay describes, or Jay is, uh, is for Yah, describes a human-like God called Yahweh, or Yahweh, throughout, <coughs> throughout and has special interest in the territory of the kingdom of Judah, and individuals connected with its history, and has a very eloquent style. It was originally composed about 950 BCE. Okay, the thing... Um, that I want to emphasize, and maybe I should have put in red, is the human-like God. When you have depictions of God walking in the garden, talking face-to-face, that those accounts are usually Yahwist accounts. Yeah. Genesis 2 would be the later story. It would be the Elohist source, yeah. Um, and, well, thank you. <laughs> that moves me right to the screen. E parallels J, often duplicating the narratives, makes up about a third of Genesis and Exodus for fragments and numbers. E describes a human like God initially called Elohim, and Yahweh substituted the inc- incident of the burning bush at which Elohim reveals himself as Yahweh. 
One of the things that scholars also noticed is if you're reading it in order, God's name as Yahweh isn't revealed until Exodus, right? When Moses is at the burning bush, he says, what name should I give them when I go there? And that's when God says, I am, which means that's what Yahweh means, I am, or it really means I make, think, I make come into being. <coughs> if that's the name, then why is it used all the way back in Genesis 2? It's because those are two different traditions. In the Eloist tradition, that God's name was Elohim at first and then gradually revealed as Yahweh. So they reinterpret it slightly differently. It focuses on Israel. So in this case, we can see that the voice of and the perspectives of the northern and southern kingdom are gradually beginning to be put together into one scripture. Now Deuteronomy is where things really happened, though. <coughs> Remember, it's the second book of the law, and as we saw, we know when this book was found. So D in the Pentateuch is restricted to the book of Deuteronomy and continues in Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Now this stresses centralized worship in Jerusalem, obedience to Mosaic law and destruction of all foreign elements. So if you notice, like in Deut Deuteronomy 20, um, holy war is described. And notice it's in Deuteronomy. And holy war, in the description, is this. They, if, if a city is not in the promised land, then it says to approach the city and offer them terms of peace. The terms of peace are, you are our slaves. If you do not become enslaved, then we kill everyone here. It's holy war. And guess who invented holy war, which is depressing. <coughs> a second, and you can look at Deuteronomy, you can see this, um, it says anyone in the promised land, you are to kill everyone, every living person, every goat, sheep, everything. The third part of it, though, is the part that is the most mystifying to a modern reader. It says, but don't kill the fruit trees. Right after it says, kill every living human being, it says, don't kill the fruit trees because you've got to have something to eat while you're besieging the city. Okay. So holy war is instituted in Deuteronomy 20, but... And that reveals that the Deuteronomist perspective is that all foreign elements need to be removed. Now you have to think about what the context of their time period was to see why they would be concerned with that. They also want worship in Jerusalem only. When you read Genesis and Exodus, Abraham's always building altars. That's what he does. Everywhere he goes, he builds an altar, right? Uh, Moses builds altars. Joshua builds altars. All those places have, uh, in the Deuteronomy's perspective, has to be all torn down because all worship has to be centralized. And they do. They tear all those places down. You remember uh, in the story of Numbers that Moses raises up the serpent? Hezekiah, due to some of these reforms, destroys it. It's an idol. So from the Deuteronomy's perspective, they have to destroy all of that history Everything focuses in on Mosaic law. <coughs> so they forbid intermarriage, and they ask that all Jews who are married to foreigners divorce. Okay, so it takes the form of a series of sermons about the law, recapitulating the narrative of Exodus and Numbers, 
And its distinctive name for God is Yahweh Elohenu, the Lord our God. And it was in the 650 to 621. Okay, now, the reason that it happens in 650 to 621 is because they already have experienced the first exile. The northern kingdom has already been destroyed in 722. These are the surviving people. And you can see what happens is what happens to any culture that has their people scattered. We know now the 10 tribes of Israel that were the northern part really became scattered and intermarried and pretty much disappeared from the planet. So they very much feared for their own existence. And you can see why this is why there would be an importance to pull what scriptures they had together into a canon and to eliminate foreign elements and to centralize worship. All of these would be essential to the survival of the Jews. <coughs> okay. The priestly source comes later in the book of Leviticus mostly comes from the priestly source. It's preoccupied with lists and genealogies and we can thank them for all those lists and genealogies that Numbers has a certain story flow to it but every now and then they just they give a census of the entire population. You're like really? Not, it doesn't it seem very important today as a reader. Um, but of course, this is an important part of culture too, and you can see why in a later time this would become important, right? The Jewish people are under threat. They might be scattered all over the planet, so it's good to trace out the genealogies. <coughs> but if you look at Leviticus, this is where you get all the dietary laws and restrictions. So they're adding that other layer. The Deuteronomists are adding... Uh, you know, when you read the Ten Commandments, it's kind of disappointing that right after, then they start giving these really, really minute laws. Like if an ox falls into a ditch, and you feel like, well, this is very anticlimactic, isn't it? And we just got the Ten Commandments, and then it's like, well, and if someone steps on his neighbors, you know, and you're, what? Well, the Deuteronomists have put those in, and, and, and these writers have begun to put those things in. Yeah. Yes. That original. If you look at commentaries, that's still it's still a, a popular claim that Moses wrote everything except the chapter on his death. There are a lot of problems with that that I could get into, and, and that people have noticed this since the 1600s, and Jewish scholars noticed it first. So I think it, it, the, I don't think it's official even in the Catholic Church that Moses wrote the first five books, but. <coughs> And there are other problems it, because there's no first person. There's, it, he knows things he couldn't have known, that sort of thing. And I'm teaching from a literary standpoint. And literary theorists just don't believe Moses could have written any of it. Yeah. I'm wrong, I'm wrong. It's uh, A.D. that the, the centralized uh, religion into Jerusalem, but the, uh, uh, what do you call it, Muslims did that in about 700, it, that yeah, the was other, A.D. The that other was yeah, A.D. I, I'm wrong. 
All right. I've only got like one, two more slides. Let me finish that. Maybe we can have a little question and answer thing. All right. Um, so here's the way that they put it together. First reduction of the Torah, combine J and E to create JE, about 750. Second reductor, combine J and E with D. <laughs> and P to put the work in the final form, about 400 BCE. So about 400 BCE, we have the first parts of the Bible final. And, of course, we just know that historically, that they're not canonized till this time. Okay, now what I wanted to say is this. <coughs> what you see in a shift of these, of the redactors, is a shift actually in Judaism, in, in, in the shape of Judaism, and one is kind of leading into the other. So what we are looking back at and calling Judaism it came to be slowly over a period of time. And so the things that we think are, uh, are important in Judaism or what some people think are important in Judaism, some are later editions, some are earlier editions. So it's interesting to think, well, what was the, early, the earliest beliefs that God was the God of Abraham and that he spoke to people and that you could reason with him. And the covenant concerned being a light to the nations in the promised land. You know, that, that there was a special land given to the, to the children of Abraham. In E, God is more distant and transcendent, and the covenant centers on Moses and the Exodus. It even uses a different name for Sinai. It uses the name Horeb for Sinai, emphasizing and emphasizes that God doesn't no longer speaks face to face, but through prophets and to dreams and through dreams. And then the next level, the Deuteronomist, focus almost entirely on Mosaic law. And interpret God's is Israel's history is directly related to obedience and disobedience. So that theme that's so strong all the way through Judges and the Kings is brought by the Deuteronomist. The Northern Kingdom had fallen in 722, and the Deuteronomist saw this as a warning to the Southern Kingdom. So the covenant was interpreted as keeping Mosaic law, destroying all places of worship except Jerusalem, and avoiding all foreign entanglements such as forbidding intermarriage and encouraging genocide of neighboring peoples. Now, of course, this policy is going to get them in trouble, as you can imagine. This is why later, when after the exile, when the south does fall to the Babylonians, and they were allowed to return when the Persians defeat the Babylonians, Nehemiah and Ezra come back and they want to rebuild the temple. The people that are there are like, no. We don't want to rebuild the temple. We do not want to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem because every time we get power, we resist the powers that be and end up getting destroyed. So there's quite a bit of an argument whether they should ever rebuild the temple. And then in P, the priestly source of covenants interpreted as adherence to ritual practices. And you can see that all those things combine to become modern Judaism. And the questions within modern Judaism. What is exactly uh, a Jew's relationship to God? Is it keeping of rituals? Is it keeping of the Mosaic law? Is it the keeping of the covenant of Abraham? So, and, and I think Jews interpret that differently. And of course, we can interpret it differently. What exactly it meant. Okay, there we go. I can't believe that I got that right twice. Like exactly the right amount of slides, exactly the right amount of time. Okay, now, questions and answers as much as I can answer. <laughs> if, uh, if, we've, if we've got a, a 
canon at about 400 BC. It's not complete till 300 or so. Okay. The prophets haven't been added in. I was going to ask about the prophets. When would those the prophets have those books have been added? Well, the prophets spoke in the time of the of the kings, and so some of the prophets were northern prophets, and then that fell, and some were southern prophets, and then some, like Jeremiah, lived in the exile. Um, so, uh, naturally, their books are still kind of floating around and being pieced together, and so the, not till the 300s or so. Um, but yes, but certainly about 300. What we call the Old Testament today would have all been canonized before Jesus about was born? About 300 years before, before Jesus was born. Before Jesus was born. They call it the intertestamental period, and of course, things happen in there. The Maccabees and the... Um, Revolts, so they're historically important things happen, and some of those books are in the Catholic Bible, but they're not in the Protestant Bible. But so there's a period there of non-canonical books, but they closed off the canon, I think, to protect themselves historically. The other interesting development that comes out of the out of two exiles, um, and then finally the complete destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, is the synagogue. That that through the exiles they learn we've they make the opposite conclusion of the Deuteronomists. The Deuteronomists say centralize everything in Jerusalem. And other people add it up and go, Jerusalem has been destroyed <laughs> once very thoroughly. The temple has been destroyed. We should decentralize and provide places of worship for Jews in the diaspora where they're spread out. And so the synagogue starts to appear. Yeah. If you were to give the same presentation to a room full of rabbis, or maybe you have, um, do they, you know, they tend to also be very scholarly. Um, how would that, um, I guess I'm kind of riffing off Le uh, Linda's question, um, how do they handle this type of criticism about the Pentateuch and they the Torah? They were the first to go there. Okay, they but led oh, the you way. mentioned that a minute ago, that Jewish scholars, but I didn't know if that was just one portion of your presentation no. or in general... We actually do that. So I guess my question is, do we actually have them to thank, in a sense, for doing the scholarly Some of it, yeah. homework at the beginning, and then we've... Yeah, and Catholics. Okay. So one of the things I learned from my professor who taught me, who was a, a Christian minister himself, is he wasn't threatened by this. He saw this as just sensible. Analysis. Yeah. yeah. It made sense to him. He studied the Hebrew Union, and so... It, which is Jewish, as you might guess, yeah, Hebrew Union. Right. So he studied a Hebrew Union, but also at, um, uh, <laughs> can't remember, but he studied it both. He wanted to study at a Jewish mm -hmm. school, and, and he, so he learned a lot of it from Jewish scholars. Mm -hmm. Jewish scholars have never been afraid of anything like this. Okay. Um, yeah, and it, they're not clinging to the Moses thing either. Yeah, okay. Most of them, I don't think. I don't understand why they would be threatened. I'm not threatened by this. I think it's this is a wonderful story. I think story. it's fascinating. Yeah, but it's the, in the end, it's the ideas that count. It's not who followed who, right? Yeah. I mean, that, for me, that's right. That's the way it is. Well, if, story, if the stories mean anything, then they share some kind of a truth, and that yeah. as long as you get the truth, I, it's interesting. Uh, in Hinduism, they uh, they don't believe in like authority of word like. Christians do that. Uh, they believe, well, okay, let me just back up. Their belief is uh, you, once you've opened the package, 
and gotten the message, you don't need the package. So they don't center their world on scriptures. They center their world on, did you get the idea? And so, to me, that's kind of a sensible way to look at it. Did you get the idea, and not to get bent out of shape? Yeah, and so they don't have things like a Bible in Hinduism. My okay. point, thank you. Um, my point in asking that question was actually because I'm fascinated by how the Deuteronomists have put a different spin looking back. You know, that's where the very, um, you touched on it a moment ago, I mean, it's changed the tone. It See what I'm saying? Radically. So that's, that's what I wanted to know, like how do they handle, how do they perceive that? You touched on it by saying, you know, this affects how people practice their Judaism. Yeah. Like how much emphasis are you going to let the Deuteronomists have on your faith? Are you going to say, yeah, genocide, look, it's right there in chapter 20 of Deuteronomy, it's okay. I mean, you know, that's why I was going with that question more. This doesn't threaten me either. I just think we need to realize how folks later in history put a spin on earlier history and kind of railroad others into a certain narrow-minded view of history. Well, that's always the way that I believed it. Uh, because of that, because the Deuteronomist view is so strong and they contributed almost all of the history books, that when you read Judges, you see that these are just stories of these various judges that are woven together with this, everyone was disobedient, and then, you know, it, there's the exact same narrative, and you can tell that somebody just came back in and put all those in there. And to me, it's kind of liberating to think, well, the Deuteronomists centered everything on genocide and holy war, but that's not the only perspective that was going through Judaism. One great example of that is the Deuteronomists were really big on no intermarriage, nothing to do with anyone that's not a Jew. And at the same time, we have the book of Ruth and the book of Esther, which have contrary messages to that. And one of the things I really respect about redactors is even though they had their point of view, they didn't take the other things out, much to our confusion. Sometimes you're reading it like, didn't I just read this story? <laughs> but they didn't take it out. They just put it all together. And in a way, I think that's I, and I use that as a teaching method sometimes. I'll put a bunch of ideas in front of the students, and I'll never make a conclusion. And I really won't allow them either to settle in on anything, so that eventually they will see that all of those things are, are available to, to, to perceive and make choices by. It's liberating to me to think somebody might have come up with the genocide thing later, and then perhaps Moses wasn't that big on genocide. Perhaps. You know, I don't know. Well, they always say that history belongs to the victors, to the, the people that The ruled. Deuteronomists are the victors. Yeah. And, and it does, it, it, uh, especially nowadays when we have people that are uh, inerrancy folks that can, that, um, and along the way there have been in 400, w when Constantine wanted to rework some things, that editors could have said, well, this is all confusing to people. Let's let's get rid of this and let's get rid of that so the stories are the same right you know, even and they didn't no so well, I, I they didn't in the new testament either we'll talk about that next week yeah. but in the new testament you know there are problems connecting the synoptic gospels with john they just let it sit there and figured you know you can you can make your choices and figure that's what out. makes it even more powerful that someone along the way just didn't say let's weave this all together so that Nobody has a question. Well, it adds an element of veracity. Y if you watch any NCIS or any of those kind of shows, how do they always know when people are lying? 
when their stories match. (laughs) Because people who actually see something don't ever see the same thing. And so if we go from that point of view that if the stories don't match, it actually adds an element of veracity to it. If they did, then you'd have to say, well, they're all writing from the same source. Yeah. Yeah. In some aspects of the New Testament, they are. They're writing from Mark. They're using Mark as the basis. Thank you, Dr. Lloyd. And we'll be considered mutineers if we don't get to church, some of us (laughs) that are going. Uh, We'll see you next week. Any of you that didn't get copies of last week's slides or this week's slides, there are some copies laying around. So get one if you need them. Thank you.